We shall turn now to the Word of God, to the book of Revelation, chapter 12. We shall read from verse 7 just now, Revelation chapter 12, reading from verse 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ, for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. And may God bless to us again this reading of his word. We have been considering something of these great wonders in the chapter 12, uh, following through the uh, visions of John, what was being revealed to him regarding the developments in the world of men, but very particularly as they related to the church of Jesus Christ and to the cause of the gospel. And when we came to the end of chapter 11, there is great rejoicing because the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then the judgment takes place where God meets out justice to his people and to his enemies. When we come to chapter 12, as we said, then we have a revelation regarding other things that were taking place over the same period. We view it uh, now from uh, God's vantage point. Uh, the uh, wonders are wonders that appear in heaven. And uh, the great wonder or sign in verse 3 of this chapter is the great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. We looked at God's merciful dealings 
with the woman bringing forth the man-child, but the dragon is waiting, ready to devour the man-child, Christ himself, the Redeemer, as soon as he is born. But he's unsuccessful. He's defeated in his purpose. But then we come to see another great defeat related to the first, but somewhat different. There was war in heaven. Now, it is hard for you and I to imagine war in heaven. But here we are told there was war in heaven. And what a war it is. We are told that Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels. What a war that had to be. But we have to understand the nature of this war, and we looked a little at it last week, but I want to concentrate (coughs) as enabled upon the great red dragon himself, who is a central figure in this war. We're told that the great, verse 9, the great dragon was cast out, and uh, the old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Now, I think at this stage where we are, we ought to remind ourselves that this book of the Revelation isn't just prophetic, it is also pastoral. Remember that John is to write what he sees and what he hears, and it's to be sent to the seven churches. Reference is usually made to this book as being the apocalypse, as being uh, the revelation, the opening of uh, an understanding of events and the purposes of God. But the book of the Revelation is actually also a pastoral letter. It is written to the seven churches. And it is written by John uh, with a pastoral spirit. And that's something we should keep in mind. It was intended to be a source of tremendous encouragement, enlightenment, but encouragement to the church in John's day and indeed to our very day. One of the things that uh, very often even Ungodly men in times of war have recognized in order to succeed, you need to know your enemy. You need to know who you're fighting. You need to know your enemy's strengths. You need to have some knowledge of his tactics, of his intentions. That's why even to this day there is so much activity in the uh, nation's secret services trying to discover what is the other 
nation thinking? What are they planning? What are they up to? Now, here are the churches being told what they can expect, what they are to be faced with and confronted with in the person of this adversary who is prepared to ferment war even in heaven. You imagine what his character has to be. He is so vile and wicked and so determined in his opposition to God, he is prepared to ferment and instigate war in heaven. What a character. We're told, verse 7, there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not. And it is implied that it was the great red dragon who instigated the war, who commenced the war. And then Michael and his angels fight against the dragon. Now, I want to concentrate for a little then upon this adversary, this one so evil that he would endeavor to war in heaven, uh, the great red dragon who, as we're told, was the accuser of the brethren day and night, accusing them before God. And he turns then from accusation to persecution, as we shall see. Now, the first thing that we will consider is the dragon's defeat. That is important. The dragon's defeat. Then, as you will see in the context, we need to consider the dragon's rage. Because there is a woe pronounced. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth. Woe be to you that he has now come to be among you. And he's raging. The dragon saw that he was cast to the earth. He raged because he knoweth that he hath a short time. And he's going to endeavor to do as much damage as he possibly can, using every opportunity to harm Christ's cause. And then we may, and it's very important, the dragon's field of operation. Where does he actually work? Where is he actually active? I think that most people today just think he's some mythical character. He's not really active at all. He's not doing anything. We don't have to be bothered in the slightest about him. But we're told he is here among the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. He's down amongst men in this world, very, very active. And then we may consider the dragon's character, as we said. We need to know who we're actually dealing with. 
and then his determination. First of all, then, the dragon's defeat is clearly brought before us. He fought, but we're told, bear seat and prevailed not. He did not prevail. You remember what the Savior in Matthew 16 tells us, what he promised he was going to do in this world? I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell, or Hades, shall not prevail against it. Now, the Savior is speaking of building a spiritual church of living spiritual stones. And he said, the gates of hell shall not prevail, but the gates of hell will be very active. You have to understand the significance of the gates, of course. Every city in biblical times had uh, the place referred to as the gates, and uh, there the elders, the counselors, would meet, and they would discuss various issues that were brought that justice legally might be done. You go to the book of Ruth, and you have Boaz there, and he calls the elders to the gate of the city, and uh, there is a transferring then of the part and the responsibilities of the near kinsman over to Boaz so that he buys the land and becomes the legal owner of it that had been Naomi's, and he also has the legal right to take Ruth then as his wife. But this was all transferred and it all took place at the gate of the city. Now, when Jesus says the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, we are to understand that the uh, very enemies of the gospel, the devil and his angels, are not fighting in a chaotic manner. They have, as it were, Jesus says, the gates of hell, they sit in council, they plan, they plot, they scheme against Christ's church. And yet Jesus says, no matter what plan they come up with, no matter what uh, strategy they endeavor to apply, they shall not prevail. I will carry on building my church in spite of all their opposition. Now here in this chapter 12, we have the devil and we have a strategy. He is referred to as the accuser of the brethren who accuses them before God day and night. Now what happens is that he's cast out. The great 
dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, he's cast out into the earth. Verse 11, verse 10 tells us what happens when he's cast out and the war is over in heaven. I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now, now that he's cast out, is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. Why has he been cast out? What power has overcome him that he's cast out, that he's defeated? The power of God's Christ, God's anointed. Now, how does this come about? The accuser of our brethren is cast down. So he can't make his accusations anymore. He can't carry on accusing the brethren before God day and night. He accused them before God day and night. And that's what he's there to do. To accuse. You remember what we've been Thinking, going through the book of Job, Satan is called to account. As thou considered my servant Job, there's none like him. And Satan had considered him. And he had his own opinion of him and his service for God. And he said, well, Job doesn't serve God for any real spiritual reason He's only serving God because God's hedged him about. God's protecting him and God's blessing him materially. That's the only reason he's serving God. And uh, so we, without going into it, you all know from Wednesday evenings what happens. Now, here is Satan accusing. And he's accusing the children of God. He's accusing Moses. He's accusing Abraham. He's accusing David. He's bringing all these accusations before God because whatever he doesn't believe or whatever he does, he believes in the justice of God. And he's there before God demanding that God will do justice. And therefore, in the justice of God, what right has Moses, or what right has Abraham, or what right has Jacob, or what right has David, or Manasseh, what right have they to be received by God? He's bringing accusations against them. But what has happened in heaven? We read in verse 5, we've already considered it, the woman brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. 
My, what a difference this must make. The one who rules with the rod of iron. He's now caught up to God and to his throne. Now, Satan, whatever he does, he can't occupy the throne. That's for sure. And here is one now occupying the throne. But he comes with his accusations. And he's warring against the sins with his accusations. But what does John tell us in the first epistle of John in the second chapter? John writes, verse 1 of First John 2, <coughs> My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have now an advocate. We had an accuser, but now the advocate has arrived. And what a difference that makes. You imagine this is like a court of law. There's the accuser, and he brings forth his accusations. But then there is an advocate, and the advocate takes up the keys of the accused. And the advocate is responsible for the person accused and to refute the accusations, to demolish the accusations. Now what does Paul write to the Romans? There is therefore now no condemnation There is none. Why? Because the advocate is on the throne and the accuser has been cast out. And instead of an accuser now, what do the saints have? They have an advocate. The battle has been won and Satan has been defeated. What does John tell us in chapter 12, Revelation? They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb because Christ is ascended. His blood has been shed. And his blood has been carried, not like the blood of the Animal sacrifices in the Old Testament that were carried by the high priest on the Day of Atonement into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled upon the mercy seat covering the law that was accusing. The law is silent. Oh, the law could accuse every Israelite. But it's silenced because the blood is covering it And the blood speaks even louder as the advocate. Now, 
What does Paul tell us when he's writing to the Hebrews? Christ is ascended. Where has he gone? He is gone not into the holy place in the earth made by hands, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. If you look at chapter 9 of Hebrews, it's most interesting and it fits in with what we're endeavoring to say and helps to explain actually what happens in Revelation 12. Verse 11 of Hebrews 9, Christ being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered. He entered, and because he enters, Satan has to go. He has entered as the great advocate. And Satan, the accuser, has then to be cast out. He has obtained eternal redemption for us. Now, in the Old Testament, under the ceremonial law, you have uh, there... uh, the sprinkling of the blood to sanctify basically everything connected with the priestly sacrificial system, the worship of God. Almost all things, we are told, were purged with blood. Now, in this uh, chapter 9, the great high priest is entered with his blood. Now, is it just simply that that blood atones for the soul and covers the sins of the people of God? Look with me at verse 22 of this chapter 9 in Hebrews. Almost all things are by the law purged with blood. They are purged, they are cleansed, they are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood is no remission. It was necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these. Now, what's the apostle saying? It was necessary that all the utensils, all the furnishings connected with the tabernacle, the worship of God, they had to be purged with blood. They had to be cleansed, had to be purified with blood. But the apostle tells us something more. These were but the patterns of things in heaven. The heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. You and I have to understand 
The heavenly things are not material things. The material things are the patterns of the heavenly spiritual realities. And here's what the apostle says. The earthly patterns, they had to be purified. They had to be sanctified. They had to be uh, cleansed. They had to be purged with the blood, the, the blood of the animal sacrifices. But what about heaven? Where the realities are? With better sacrifices than these. Now immediately, what do we need to ask? What would need to be purged in heaven? What would need cleansing or purging in heaven? Why would there need to be any purging in the presence of God, in the holy presence of a holy God? Christ, we're told, verse 24, is entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. And because he appears as the great advocate in the presence of God for us, what happens? Heaven is purged of the accuser. He is cast out. And there is a purging and a cleansing from the accusations. Because, of course, the accusations are accusing of sin. The accusations are accusing of transgression of God's law. And the whole purpose of the devil's accusations is to keep the people of God from being accepted by God. What does God say? The wages of sin is death. So Satan comes with his accusations. Now pay the wages. Pay these sinners in the right current. Pay them for their sin. Apply thy justice. When God says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Satan comes and he accuses, right? Now, God of justice, apply the law, execute justice, punish these sinners, execute justice, and destroy them. But the great advocate, he enters with his blood. And that blood is the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of evils. And as we noted, John saw in the end of the chapter 11, the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of the testament. As we said, no one had seen this before, because that Ark was in the uh, darkness of the Holy of Holies, and the blood was sprinkled upon it. It could not be seen 
and the blood was there to silence the accusations of the law contained in the Ark of the Testament or the Ark of the Covenant. Now here John says, you can see the Ark now. Everything's opened up. You can look on it. You don't have to be afraid of it now. The Israelites were terrified. That law was calling out for justice. And the high priest had to go in with the blood to silence its accusations. Now here is the great purging. Satan has no more warrant for his accusations. He's cast out. And all his accusations are cast out with him. Does that mean that God isn't bothered anymore by the sins of his people? They don't matter anymore. That Satan is silenced. He's cast out of heaven. We won't hear him coming with his accusations anymore. No, no. If any man sin. We have an advocate now. What a wonderful victory. What a glorious victory is this. The the accuser is cast out and the advocate has entered in. And this is the dragon's defeat. He's cast out, but uh, you can... See where he ends up. He's cast out of heaven, but he's not cast into hell. We might think, well, wouldn't that be a fit place for him? Because you can see, in spite of his defeat, in spite of his humiliation, and in spite of his punishment, he's cast out He gives no evidence whatever of any change of heart, of any alteration of his attitude or change of his spirit. No evidence of repentance whatever. Now, he is cast out. He's defeated. He's humiliated. Now, why does God punish? It is so that men might acknowledge, or any creature, the wrongdoing, their sin, and the devil was responsible for great sin. But does he repent? Not one iota of evidence. What we're told is, Verse 12, therefore rejoice ye heavens and ye that dwell in them. He's cast out. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil is come down unto you having great wrath. He doesn't have remorse. He doesn't feel humiliated sufficient to repent. He doesn't turn to God seeking mercy or seeking forgiveness. He doesn't turn uh, to Christ 
to be an advocate for him. It's not in his nature. He isn't interested. He is now come down among men having great wrath. What does that mean in reality for those that he's now dwelling among? That the apostle tells us he knoweth that he hath but a short time. Now that he can't accuse, he resorts to persecution. But he hasn't changed, not one iota, so that what he delighted previously in, what he engaged in, although he can't do it anymore before the throne, he still does it. Notice, Uh, where he's operating among men, among the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. And he's going to display his wrath. And he is going to demonstrate how much he hates the God who has cast him out of heaven and the Christ who has defeated him as the accuser. But look at who he is. We go back up to verse 9. The great dragon was cast out. That old serpent. Now the great dragon, the great red dragon, as we saw from the red horse and so on, it's symbolic of war and bloodshed, brutality, fierceness. And he is a a beast, a creature with seven heads, ten horns. Now John would have been aware he lived in a Greek culture. John was very familiar with the Greek mind and the Greek thinking. And he knew that in the minds of men, the idea of a seven-headed monster was uh, very often the, uh, the Jews' mind went back to the Old Testament and he considered Leviathan. He is referred to in Job and so on. Uh, Leviathan, the great monster out of the deep. He had seven heads and was considered indestructible because if you wound one head, he still got six more. And the idea was that this great red dragon appeared to be indestructible. Where is the power that can defeat him? He has seven heads, he's ten horns, he's seven crowns upon his heads, he's claiming great victories, and so on. But he's not just the great red dragon He's that old serpent, or as it can be translated, the serpent of old. The serpent of old. He's experienced. He's highly experienced. And what is the serpent of old experienced at? Deceit. That's what he works at. 
Woe be to men, for he's come down to deceive you. And how does he deceive? As he did in the, uh, he's the serpent of old, the old serpent. And uh, Paul tells us when he's writing to the Corinthians in the second epistle, to the Corinthians, he's expressing concern for the church at Corinth. And this is what he writes in chapter 11 of Second Corinthians. Would to God ye could bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Listen to what he says. But I fear. I fear. Now, who's he writing to? He's writing to the church in Corinth. He's writing to believers. I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through a subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. What is the devil doing here? Has he beguiled Eve? How did he beguile Eve? Hath God said? And then he continues to claim knowledge of the mind of God. God doth know, he says. I can reveal to you more of the mind of God than he has made known to you. As the serpent beguiled thee, through subtlety sow your minds in Corinth. You Christians, you people in Corinth, he should corrupt your minds from what? From the simplicity That is in Christ. What did he mean by that? The devil has come to you in Corinth. And he has gotten in to your thinking processes. And he has infiltrated your minds. And he has distracted you. And he has led you off from what? The simplicity that is in Christ. He has distracted you from Christ. He's gotten your mind off somewhere else. We're of Paul. We're of Apollos. We're of Cephas. We're of Christ. He has gotten your minds away off from Christ. And instead of thinking about him, instead of speaking about him, instead of trusting in him, instead of relying upon him, your minds are everywhere else. And the devil has come in to Corinth and has corrupted your minds from the simplicity of Christ 
and you're not now relying on him, trusting in him, you've got additional works of righteousness or additional claims or whatever, you've moved away from Christ. And here, John tells us, the one who is cast out of heaven, he didn't leave his character behind, He didn't say, well, now I'm not in heaven as the accuser. I'm down on earth now. I'm among men. I'll have to change. He hasn't changed one iota. He's still the old serpent. And my dear friend, he's a lot more experienced than you or I. And he's been very successful. He's got a lot of crowns. He's got uh, ten heads and he's got Seven crowns because he's been working and he's been achieving a lot by way of deception. But also, he is called the devil. Not just the old serpent, but he is also called the uh, devil. And that tells us something uh, further about his Character is the, we've already seen it, he's the false accuser and the slanderer. That's what it means. So he can't accuse the people of God before the throne of God anymore. Does he give up now and say, well, I'll just have to change. I'll just have to quit my accusing. I'll just have to give up. Can't slander Abraham anymore. I can't accuse Moses anymore. What'll I do? He comes down to this earth. He's cast out. And he's still the devil. And he's still the accuser. And he's still the slanderer. But where is he now accusing? Where is he now slandering? He comes to the people of God with his accusations. He can't take them to God. But he comes to the people of God to trouble them, to try them, to tempt them. And he comes with his accusations to disturb them, to undermine their confidence, to shake their faith in Christ. That's what he does. And he comes to slander them. And he works in the professing church with his false accusations, with his slander, stirring up people to slander and accuse and, and, and join in his service. This is what he does. He can't do it in heaven. But he knows. He knows the damage he can do with his accusations in the world and among the people of God, and he's still the devil and also he is Satan, which of course means adversary. Peter warns us, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, Your adversary. Oh, you see, I'm a very friendly person, a very social being. 
I don't have any enemies. I don't have any problem with anybody. I'm a very peaceable person. I get on with everyone. I don't really have any adversaries. I mistaken you are. Peter says, your adversary. He's your adversary. Your adversary, the devil goeth about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And as we said last week, as long as there is a remnant, he will try to devour it. At the end of this chapter, you see, he made war with a remnant of her seed, even a remnant. One of God's people is one too many for Satan, for the devil. And he will do everything to discourage them. He will do everything to tempt them, to doubt Christ, to turn from him. Now, he has come down with this character to work among men. And who's he opposed to? He's opposed to Christ and he's opposed to Christ's church. So he uses the tactics that he's used before. His old character is still there intact. So he opposes. He's the adversary. He comes with his accusations. He comes with his attacks because of a relationship, a, a relationship that exists between Christ and his people. Isn't it strange that in comparison, or perhaps contrasting, with generations past, godly men were aware that they had an adversary, the devil, and he did come with accusations to disturb them, to prevent them getting on with the work of God. Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox. You see this, the, the efforts that uh, the devil engaged in to hinder the gospel and to discourage men from preaching the gospel in the uh, gospel according to John, Jesus reminds those even in his day, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, John chapter 8. Here's what he says. Verse 44 of John 8. Ye are of your father the devil. Who is he speaking to? Some black-cloaked creature with a wings flapping about like an enlarged bat? Is that what we're talking about? Not at all. Ye are of your father the devil. Human beings, men, religious men, and he says, you're of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. My, my. 
Woe unto the inhabitants of the earth and sea. Why? There's a murderer has come down to dwell among you. A murderer. Why are we shocked then? However terrible we think it is, all these abortions, the slaughtering of the millions of unborn children, the murders that we hear about day by day. Yes, in Australia, never a day passes. Somebody stabbed, somebody shot, Murder, murder, murder. Where does it come from? The murderer has come down to dwell among you. And he inspires men in positions of authority, legislators. He works among them, works in their minds to make them think This is good for human society. This is good for families. This is good for the future. This is good for the economy. This is good for anything but God. Because a murderer has come down among you. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. He's the father of lies. He's the creator of a lie. When you tell a lie, that lie comes from the pit itself. He is the father of it. He's the producer of it. And Jesus is saying, Ye are of your father the devil. Now how do we connect this? Isn't he a spirit? Of course he is. And ye, your flesh and blood, yes. But you're of the same spirit. And uh, you remember when Satan entered into Judas Iscariot. Then he went out to do his dark and dastardly deeds because Satan entered in and took control of him. Didn't matter that he'd been a disciple. Didn't matter that he'd preached the gospel. Didn't matter that he was the treasurer uh, keeping the purse for the disciples and the little band of the disciples Satan entered into him and caused him to go out and do what he did. And Paul is writing to the Romans and he is telling them, or the Corinthians rather, I am afraid of you because I know we're not ignorant of Satan's devices. He can get into Corinth and he can do damage there because he's a murderer and he's a deceiver, and he's a liar, and he's an accuser, and he's a slanderer, and he's the great red dragon opposed to Christ and his cause. 
When you go to Paul's epistle, his first epistle to the Thessalonians, it's obvious that Paul had a great affection for the saints at Thessalonica. And when he writes to them of his concern, his desire to bring them spiritual benefits through the preaching of the word. This is what he writes. First Thessalonians 2, verse 18. Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. Satan hindered an apostle. Satan hindered us from preaching the gospel. That's what Paul is really saying. We would have come unto you. We were quite willing to come. We were ready to come. We were uh, willing to come whatever the difficulties to preach, to bring a blessing to you, but Satan hindered us. I tell you, you need to pray for God's servants preaching his word because Satan will do everything to hinder them. Make no mistake about it. Paul, when he's writing to the Romans in chapter 15, he tells them there that he was hindered from coming. That is one of the devices of the devil. He can't accuse He can't stop the building of Christ's church. He can't stop the proclamation of the word, but he will engage in whatever activities are necessary in order to hinder the preaching of the everlasting gospel. And this is why here this chapter 12 is so, so solemn. Here is the character of the one who is cast out of heaven and his field of activity is now harassing the church, accusing the people of God, seeking to hinder the preaching of the gospel, seeking to do everything to bring dishonor to Christ. He knows He's defeated. He can't keep the saints out of heaven. He knows that. And he knows this time is short. And he is limited. So he will do everything. Child of God, do you know he is your adversary? Do you know how dangerous he is? Or do you think you can play with him now and again? His company isn't very dangerous or harmful. He has come down. And if we do not know him and who he is and we don't know his character, woe be to us. He is able to deceive the whole world, we're told. And it's only the elect of God that are preserved from his deception. The devil has come down, defeated though he is. 
he is still active and he's still a danger. But Christ is in the throne. He's the advocate. And when the devil brings his accusations and the poor child of God is ready to weep with a broken heart, it's all, I know, I know. I'm an advocate with the Father. Christ is within the veil and he's driven the accuser out because he's the glorious, compassionate advocate. May the Lord bless his word. Let us pray. Our gracious and eternal God, we thank thee for a risen Christ, for an exalted Christ, for a victorious and triumphant Christ. We bless thee that the accuser is cast down. Thy people have an advocate. Oh, may we be looking to him today with confidence in him and in the merits of his atoning blood. May we overcome all his accusations, all his temptations uh, by the blood and by the word of her testimony. Bless thy truth, pardon his receivers. For Jesus Christ's sake, amen.